Bibles to find a scripture passage. It comes to us this morning from Isaiah chapter 11 to 12, to Isaiah chapter 12, verse 6. That's found in our Pew Bibles on page 1076. Hear now the word of the Lord. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, the lion will eat straw like the ox, the infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. Neither They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain." For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath and from islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia To the west, together they will plunder the people to the east. They will lay hands on Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that men can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. In that day you will say, I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. 
Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May he add his blessing to it as we consider it together this morning. Well, if you're here with us last week, we considered how Isaiah was showing that God was bringing Israel soon to a very low point with the coming Assyrian invasion. And we considered how God was punishing his people for their idolatry by sending this foreign aggressor upon them to occupy them for a time. And after that Assyrian aggression, the kingship from the line of David would be so greatly diminished. It would be like a majestic redwood or a sequoia chopped down to its stump and left there. Now remember that God did not intend to destroy his people by sending the Assyrians, but rather the Holy One of Israel meant to refine them, to renew his people even through their afflictions, through their trials. And so God had a plan for his chosen people, and we remember that God our Father always has a plan for his precious beloved children. Now here Isaiah tells us what God's plan was, that from that stump, that would be left over, God would cause another king from the line of David, Jesse's son, to rise up. This king of kings would sprout up like a tiny green sprout, coming out, bursting out of the stump. Now why? Why was this hope left for Israel? Because God had made promises to his people long before, promised to King David in particular in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And God is a man of his word, so to speak. He is true always to his promises. He always comes through. And so he had said previously to David there in 2 Samuel, giving him this promise that when your days, speaking to David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, that is when you are dead, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. So Isaiah, as he's in this time of despair and darkness, looking to the future and the Assyrian aggression, he's holding on to this promise as a key is a key to understanding the future. Yes, God's people deserve to be exiled from the land, the promised land, because they had broken the law of God. That was the setup that they had. They agreed to it, and therefore, God had every right to banish them from the land. But Isaiah also knew that it's impossible for God to totally abandon his people. Why? Again, because of his promises of old. God made those gracious promises to David and beforehand to Abraham and his offspring after him. And so Isaiah knew. Isaiah knew that God would come through with his promises of grace. So after this time of despair, Isaiah knew that God would raise up another son, a son of David, in time. And according to Isaiah, the hope not only of Israel, but the hope of the entire creation depended upon this one man's mission. The mission of the Messiah, the anointed king of David. And so, here we are today, and we believe 
now, in our time in history, that Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, that Messiah that Isaiah spoke of long before, 700 years before Jesus showed up on the scene of history. Jesus was the realization of Isaiah's hope bursting forth from that stump of Jesse, he who is the son of David and yet also David's Lord. And so, as we come to this text, we realize that here is presented before us our one and only hope and the hope for all creation. And here, Isaiah gives us a wealth of truth, riches here about who the Messiah is and what his mission would be. And so this morning, kind of breaking with tradition of a three-point sermon, we will consider seven connected truths about the Messiah from this text. They will be concise truths that we'll see from this uh, chapter 12 and 11 here. Starting with the first one, the companion of the Messiah. The companion of the Messiah. Isaiah here tells us that the Messiah would receive a companion to strengthen him and equip him for his mission. We find that in verse 2 where he says, The Spirit of the Lord, and all capitals there indicates that this is Yahweh, that special divine name of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And so Isaiah sees that the Spirit of the Lord would be especially united to this Messiah, this coming Messiah. With the promise like this, the Jewish believers began to expect that when the Messiah came in human history, when he came, that the Holy Spirit would also be poured out on God's people. The Messiah would be accompanied by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, when was this fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus? Well, in two different stages we can think of it. First, we can think of his conception, his holy conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary, which was accomplished by the overshadowing power of the Holy Spirit. And so even from his conception, he was accompanied by the Spirit. But secondly, and perhaps closer to what Isaiah has in mind here, we should think of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River when the Spirit of the Lord descended upon Jesus there in the form of a dove. And in chapter 3 of Luke's Gospel, we hear that Jesus was baptized too, and as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, saying, You are my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased echoing the very words uh, that God had said to David about the intimate nature of his relationship with the Father. He will be my son. And so we see that the Spirit of God descended upon him. Now why? Why did the Spirit of the Lord rest upon Jesus at his baptism? Well, up until that point, until he was about 30 years of age, Jesus lived a relatively quiet, peaceful life of obedience to, the, to his Father as a carpenter. And his baptism here, with the Spirit coming to rest upon him, was God's anointment of him to begin his public ministry as officially the Messiah. So as a true human, we see that Jesus relied entirely upon the Holy Spirit in order to grow in wisdom until he became a perfect mature man after God's own heart. There was a, a natural growth that happened in Jesus as he was led by the Spirit in that sense, which is why Luke says in Luke 2, 52, that Jesus grew 
in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And so it was the Spirit's accompanying presence and power with Jesus that equipped him to fulfill his mission as a Messiah. In his humanity, we find that Jesus, too, needed the Spirit to fulfill his task at hand. Now, fast forward a little bit. After his death and resurrection, we find Jesus ascended into glory at the right hand of the Father. And what does he now do and give to his people? He gives us his Holy Spirit. And so the Messiah sends us the companion, the same one, to empower and equip us for service in his kingdom. In fulfillment with that messianic hope that the Messiah would come with the greater outpouring of the Spirit, right? And think of this, if Jesus, the very Son of God, relied on the Spirit's accompanying power to accomplish his mission, how much more do we need to rely on the Holy Spirit and his presence and power in our tasks, in our service to him? And only the Messiah can give us this Spirit of the Lord to comfort us and to conform us into the image of God in wisdom and in fear of the Lord. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, the companion of the Messiah has been given to you as your own personal companion as well. Walk in step with him, rely on him, even as Jesus did. Now next, Isaiah tells us about the character of the Messiah in verses 3 through 5. The character of the Messiah. Here Isaiah emphasizes the justice, the righteousness of the Messiah because he is just in his own nature, in his essence, he does right. He does justice. Because his delight is in the fear of the Lord and not in the fear of man, not seeking to, approve, to win over the approval of men, but seeking to honor and glorify his Father, Isaiah says here that the Messiah will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Now, typically when we come to passages in Scripture that speak of the righteousness of Christ, we tend to only think of one form of that righteousness. We tend to only think of his perfect obedience to God's law. But that's not the entire whole picture. His righteousness is displayed also in his rule over human society in such a way that the poor and the needy are well taken care of. Isaiah foresees here a society of justice, true justice under the leadership of the Messiah, where he would rule with equity and impartiality. Not only that, but his righteousness is also shown in the judgment of the wicked. We see that in verse 4 where he says, He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. In other words, at the end of human history, after all of the atrocities and crimes committed against humanity, there will be full justice served and given and upheld under the rule of the Messiah. Now, how does this relate to Jesus Christ? Well, it is because of Jesus' own righteous character that we have hope in a holistic restoration for humanity and for God's creation. Jesus, again, he fulfilled all of God's law for us, and he gives us that righteousness, his own righteousness, to cover us and to justify us before the Father, and we receive that by faith alone. But not only that, also Jesus rules over all things justly. 
for the end goal of making all things right. Jesus, is, his heart is aimed at rectifying every injustice in society. That's where Jesus' heart is aimed at. His plan is to take all that is crooked and to make it straight. And we hear that in Revelation 21, verse 5, at the end of the Bible, where John tells us what he saw when he sees Jesus seated on the throne of God, saying, Behold, I am making all things new. That is what Jesus delights in and wants to see happen. And even now, Jesus is taking what is broken and he's mending it. He's taking what is wrong and he's making it right. And he's starting with the hearts of believers in him. He is the Lord of our righteousness. He will bring full and final justice in the end. And as this relates to us, this means that we as his followers should also share in this desire. We should desire to imitate the righteous character of the Messiah. We should love and desire what Jesus' heart loves and desires. We should seek first the kingdom of God and his justice in society as representatives of the one who wears the righteousness of God as a belt. We should as well do right by the poor and needy of society around us in his name, representing him as his ambassadors. And so we've seen the character of the Messiah. Now the next point in verses 6 through 13, we find the community of the Messiah. So in verses 6 to 13, Isaiah is showing us here with vivid imagery and symbolism the unprecedented peace and reconciliation that the Messiah creates for his people. Look at verse 10. We see that the Messiah is not just the shoot of Jesse, sprouting from Jesse and his line, that is his offspring, but he's also the root of Jesse. So how can he be both the shoot and the root? In other words, how could the Messiah be both biological offspring of Jesse, a son of David, but also the generative source of Jesse, the one who gave form and shape to who Jesse is? Well, here we find in Isaiah an indication, an early one, that the Messiah himself would be both fully man and fully God, both the Son of Man and the Son of God. And Isaiah sees that this root of Jesse, who is also the shoot of Jesse, would stand as a banner for all peoples, all peoples to rally towards him, all peoples. Now, Paul in Romans chapter 15, verse 12, he quotes this very verse, Isaiah eleven ten saying that Isaiah says the root of Jesse will spring up one who will rise to rule over all the nations in him. The Gentiles will hope. So Isaiah here envisions not only Jewish exiles flocking back to the Messiah, but also people from all the nations coming to Christ. God's ultimate plan from the very beginning was to redeem and reunite all ethnicities in fellowship under the banner of his son, Jesus Christ. Isaiah's envisioning a renewed humanity is united in peace. And we see that in verse 13, where he describes uh, the two people of, of God in that time, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, and Judah in the south, saying, Ephraim's jealousy will vanish. Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile towards Ephraim. What is he talking about here? Well, Isaiah is saying that under the Messiah, 
under his rule and reign, that all deep-seated jealousy and animosity that exists so often uh, among clans of peoples or ethnicities of the world as cultures become polarized for various reasons, all of that will be removed under the Messiah. Old rivalries will vanish, will be erased, and a new unprecedented peace will reign through the Messiah. So much so that those who used to be like predators in this world and those who are like prey for the predators will live in fellowship together without fear of being hurt by one another. And in verses 6 through 9, Isaiah gives us that symbolic language to describe this unprecedented peace of the Messiah. He speaks of people as animals here, either prey or predators, and they're together dwelling in peace the peace of the messiah is so great that people who used to hate one another devour one another they dwell in harmony now together when former enemies have fellowship together it will look like a lamb lying down with a wolf and like an infant playing with a cobra this is the kind of unity and peace that we have already together in Christ by faith. This is the unity that the Apostle Paul calls us to preserve and to uphold in Ephesians chapter 4. Jesus is the one who broke down those barriers and walls that exist between people in order to create a new humanity in himself. This, loved ones, is what community and fellowship together should look like. We must not let any jealousy, suspicion, or enmity wage uh, war against us or serve as a wedge that sticks down in between us to divide us. No, we must not let those things happen. We must keep what is essential before us as we find here the uplifted banner of the Messiah. As Jesus said, the Son of Man will be lifted up and all peoples will draw to him. We must lift up Christ evermore in our fellowship that we be united by him and what he has done for us. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, this great command applies to this. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That must be our aim as well, to uphold the community of the Messiah. Now next, the fourth point, we find the conquest of the Messiah here. Isaiah also uses the metaphor of conquest to describe the Messiah's reign. He says that in verse 14. Look at the text. Where Messiah's united community is said to swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will subdue, subdue Edom and Moab and the Ammonites will, subject, will be subject to them. So how do we understand this? this language of conquest. We have to remember that Isaiah is talking about the same Prince of Peace that he previously mentioned in chapter 9. And there we saw that weapons would be melted down. So weapons being melted down in order to be reforged as what? Tools for agriculture, tools for gardening, so that, because warfare would be no more. And so clearly this conquest language is not describing a conquest by the sword or by gun, by violent warfare. No. Isaiah, again, is using imagery, vivid imagery, in this case of military conquest, as a metaphor for the spiritual expansion of God's kingdom in the world. 
And we can remember how the Apostle Paul does the same thing in Ephesians chapter 6, where he speaks of the armor of God that he has given us, that we are to put on. And he tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces that are at war against us. And so he tells us that our battle is not against other humans in that sense, not to take up the sword, but to take up the armor of God, the righteousness of God and the breastplate, etc., those things which are spiritual gifts that God has given us. And so even, even the Apostle Paul in that text in Ephesians 6, he quotes or refers back to this righteousness, uh, this belt of righteousness as part of the armor that God has given us to put on in our spiritual warfare. And so what is this conquest of the Messiah? It is the worldwide expansion of God's kingdom by way of the Great Commission that Jesus gave his disciples. Jesus equips and employs his church today and individual Christians like yourselves to go and make disciples of all the nations. That is his conquest. It is ongoing. And it is accomplished through the Great Commission. This is our task. This is our mission as a church. We are to go about our days living for King Jesus and sharing the good news about what he has done for sinners like us until the whole earth is filled with his glory. Our mission is to proclaim the Messiah's conquest of peace, of peace through the gospel. Now next, our fifth point, we find that Isaiah speaks indirectly of the cross of the Messiah. And we find that in verses 15 to 16, where we hear Isaiah speak of the final ingathering of God's people after exile, after oppression, as his people are scattered about. He describes this ingathering of God's remnant people like a new great exodus event. It is like the first one, this second event that God would accomplish through his Messiah. And in verses 15 to 16, he tells us that the Gulf of Egypt and the great river Euphrates would dry up and create a way for the remnant to return back to God. And this is, again, symbolic language. He isn't referring to another literal parting of the sea, but rather a truer, more significant exodus that God would accomplish through his Messiah. When did that exodus happen? Well, Luke tells us in chapter 9 of his gospel account that when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, the spirits of Moses and Elijah appeared and came to him, speaking to him, and Luke tells us what they were talking about. He said they were talking about his departure, that is, his death. And in Greek, the term for departure that Luke uses there was intentional. The Greek word is exodus, exodus, which means the way out. They were talking about how Jesus was going to make a way out of death and despair through his own death and despair on the cross. By suffering in the place of sinners as their substitute, we find that Jesus opened up a new and living way to God through his body on the tree. So, that means that the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is the one and only true great exodus out of sin and death. Jesus is the highway out of Assyria for the remnant people of God. He is, as he he said in his own words, the way, the truth, and the life. No one can go through the waters of death to join the Father in the promised land except through him. 
And so we've seen the cross of the Messiah, which is our exodus. And now, sixth point, the call of the Messiah. The call comes to you, to each of us, this morning. It is both an invitation and a command to accept the truth that Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, the Messiah promised long ago, the stump of Jesse. And all these prophecies and more were fulfilled in him The call is to look to him who gives the spirit of the Lord. He is your hope. Look to him who rules with justice. He will make all things right. Look to him who creates a community of peace. The one who breaks down walls and barriers that are set up against one another to create a unity in his own people. Look to him who in peaceful conquest is overtaking the world with his truth in love. He empowers us to fulfill his great commission. Look to him who on the cross is our great exodus out of sin and death, the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through him. The call is for you to join his remnant people this morning, to come and follow him with us until he returns, because Jesus Just as Jesus was promised long ago, God promising that the Messiah would come first to die for our sins and then rise again from the dead, God has also promised that he will come again a second time to reclaim and renew all things. And so if you hear his call this morning, even through the weak words of a simple preacher like myself, if you hear the voice of God calling you out to recognize and accept the Messiah, Jesus Christ, don't harden your heart. Instead, in prayer, give your heart over to him. Give your heart over to him in faith and in submission. And what do I mean by that? Say in prayer to God, I've sinned against you. Forgive me for my sins. I deserve your wrath, but you have promised me a cleansing bath. My blood should be spilt, but it was you who bled for me on the cross of Calvary. I thank you for your ultimate sacrifice to save a sinner like me. So please give me the Holy Spirit and lead me as I seek to follow you. Lord, I hope this is true, all you say in your word. I believe that you are true. Remake me by your truth. That is the response that we ought to have. And if you've heard the call of the Messiah, if you've heeded the call of the Messiah by true faith. If you've done so by the grace of God, if you've decided to follow Jesus, then what awaits you and all those in him is the consummation of the Messiah's kingdom. And that's our seventh point. It's found in chapter 12, which is relatively short for a chapter. And we see that when Jesus comes back, the fullness of the Messiah's kingdom will arrive on earth as it is in heaven In the midst of darkness and despair, we find here Isaiah looking forward with great hope. In this sense, he's an optimist, right? Uh, Despite all the despair around him, he has optimism, not in humanity or himself, but in God and his promises. And so he's looking forward to these many blessings that are in store for us that we already have pardon, that have already begun for us. He says, we will praise the Lord, for instead of God's anger, which we deserve, we will receive full comfort full comfort. What comfort? There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are found in Christ by faith. We will trust in the Lord our God without fear 
Why? Because he is our salvation and his perfect love has cast out all our fear. We will draw up refreshing waters of joy forevermore from the wells of salvation. And Jesus himself promised that our joy will be complete in him. We will exalt his name and sing for all that he has done throughout the whole world with shouts of joy and songs of praise. And the greatest blessing of all in this consummation of the Messiah's kingdom is stated in the last verse where he says, For great is the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, among you. God himself dwelling with his redeemed people. God with us. And in Revelation 21, 3 through 4, John describes this great promise saying, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And that's right before Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. The beloved, the hope of Isaiah in times of despair and darkness is still our hope today. The big difference between us and Isaiah is that the Messiah has already come once. We have more truth, more truth to hold on to than Isaiah did. Jesus has already begun to rule and reign over all things, and God said he would come, and he did come. God says in his word that he's coming back. Surely he will come soon. Let us live by faith in the shoot and root of Jesse, Jesus, our Messiah. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this great vision by way of prophecy from Isaiah of who the Messiah is and what he would do. And we now look back and rejoice in who Jesus is and what he has done already for us. And by faith, Lord, Despite the weakness of it, we cling to him. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to build up your people with that unprecedented peace that Christ has won for us. Continue to unite us together in faith and use us in your conquest of the nations through the Great Commission. Equip and strengthen us by your Spirit who is our companion and our faithful guide, the one who brings us comfort the guarantee for the consummation of your kingdom to come. Lord, help us in this way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.